Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey Pediocast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Thomas Drans. Thomas, what's going on, man? How are you holding up these days? Oh, I'm doing all right, man. Just trying to make it through, muddle along. Uh, you know, I'm writing fiction now instead of covering hockey, but yep. that's not too big a departure for, for most hockey writers, and it's not for me either. <laughs> yes. Well, at least uh, it sounds like you're keeping safe and you're keeping keeping busy. And um, yeah, I thought, you know, it's funny. I remember earlier this season, a couple months back when... Uh, I first had this idea of doing these rewatchables. Obviously, I was going to wait till the summer when there was no hockey on, so we're doing it uh, a bit sooner than I had envisioned or hoped to. But um, mm-hmm. we've been we've had this in the works for a while, and I told you like when I get to this game, which is the Canucks Blackhawks 2011 series game seven, uh, I wanted to do it with you because I knew that you were writing about it as well. And, and we'll plug your um, athletic deep dive that you did the world <laughs> history from Burroughs' goal and everything. But uh, you were the perfect guest to do this because you've actually been thinking about it for a while, whereas I've spent the past like seventy two hours just following on this rabbit hole well the good thing too is i've actually had the good fortune of talking to you know 12 or 13 of the players who played in the game about Mm -hmm. the game itself um in extraordinary detail and so you know i think the fact is that uh, this is a game that I, I'm pretty well positioned to provide some additional insight into, and there's a lot of stuff that did that made the like didn't get off the cutting room floor in terms of that article. The first draft of that 5,000 word oral history was actually double the size, <laughs> so there's a whole lot of stuff that I, that I'm looking forward to getting to use uh, as we go through. You know, what is in my view anyway one of the most dramatic playoff games? I mean, if you build like a top five of great playoff games from the last five to ten years like i think this certainly should make the list along with you know game seven of chicago la series back in 2013 um for me that jets nashville game seven a couple years back uh sort of on that list that hockey was just so fast Mm -hmm. and those teams were both so loaded um but it's in that class and and maybe even you know 
like the stakes weren't as high as they were for that Kings LA series. I mean, those were two dynasties fighting for, you know, what would be the third cup to separate them. Now that we look back on it, that's sort of the stakes of that one. But in terms of the storylines and the drama, I don't know that this game is, is matched by anything we've seen in the last 10 years. Yeah, that's what that was my first uh, takeaway just from diving back into this world and reading all the articles, looking at all the stats, actually watching all of these games from these series and I actually went back and rewatched like most of the highlights from both the 2009 and 2010 versions of this matchup as well. And those happened in the second round, whereas this one happened in round one. So I, th- I agree that the stakes kind of felt um, like they were smaller than some of those other series you referenced. But uh, just because of all the bad blood that it built between these two teams and the history and, and the fact that this was the third part of that trilogy. And the fact that they were both really, really good, and we're going to get into all of that, certainly um, added some credence to it. And, and I'm excited to hear about all these behind-the-scenes anecdotes you're going to have, a nice little uh, touch of reporting to the PDO cast. Um, you know, sports had also ran this game recently, and I think that the general consensus online was that they butchered it in terms of what they showed and didn't and how they presented it. And so hopefully uh, people that still kind of left with a bitter taste in their mouth, not getting to experience that full uh, satisfaction will come away from this podcast with feeling like you and I did it justice. Yeah, hopefully. And, uh, and you know, I think especially missing out on the Burr penalty shot, a penalty shot attempt that he says is the worst of his career. Uh, when he looks back on it um, and and also missing out on that Patrick Sharp save back door. Mm-hmm. You know, I think those are pretty crucial sort of moments, especially because it was Burr in the penalty box. But we'll yeah. <laughs> but we'll um, we'll get into it as we go. Yeah. Save it. Yeah, don't don't jump ahead. I know. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let's okay. go. Um, so, yeah, just a couple of housekeeping things before we get into it. I want people to go back. Everyone has a lot of free time now. Hopefully everyone's staying indoors and, and being safe whenever they can. We've done two parts of these PDO cast rewatchables already. This is part three. We're going to do a bunch. I'm doing, um, Penn's Flyers 2012, that first round shit show with Charlie O'Connor oh, coming up here soon. So tremendous. That's going to be fun. It'll lower stakes for sure, but it just entertainment value will be the, through the roof. The series in which Claude Giroux memorably eclipsed Sidney Crosby yes. as the best player in the world. Well, we're going to get into uh, another player in this series. You and I are talking about reportedly eclipsing Sidney Crosby as the best player in the world here as well. So, okay, um, where were you when? So I'll leave the uh, floor open to you here because you and I actually have, I think this is why this is going to be such a fun exercise, obviously have a, a personal attachment to this series as well based on where we were at at the time and our allegiances. So I'm excited to get into this. So where were you when this series was happening? So I actually came home. It was Easter weekend and I flew home. It was the very first time that I brought my wife back to meet my family. So at the time I was six months into dating um, my wife, who I'm obviously still with 10 years on. And so it was the first time I brought her home to to meet my family. And I remember I had like a Blackberry Pearl, like something really, really (laughs) retro. And we flew out the day of game five. So the Canucks had lost uh, the first game in the series to to have a 3-1 lead. And game five, we're flying back, and there's no in-flight Wi-Fi, right? There's no nothing. And I'm sitting there refreshing the score of the game on my BlackBerry Pearl, um, just like fruitlessly for the whole flight. And finally, we sort of get, and we're coming down to land, and we get probably, what, a 1,000 feet up in the air. And I finally get the score, and it's 5-1. And I'm just blown, like, I'm blown away. I'm like, oh, that's so ugly. And I sort of scroll down and see that Lou got pulled. And I was like, oh, boy, game six is going to be nuts. So Easter Sunday, 
The Canucks lose to the Blackhawks in game six. Corey Schneider starts over Luongo. And I remember at the time I thought this is the biggest sports story in Vancouver history. Luongo not starting this game like there's never been a story like that in this market, especially when you consider Luongo's national profile. So uh, I remember that game really vividly. We watched it at my grandpa and grandma's house and my grandparents had actually just sold their place. It was like our last family dinner at their place, the the place that they owned when I grew up. So again, this is like all this loaded stuff for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then we get into the uh, game seven. And again, because I lived in Toronto at the time, I'd visited home. So I flew back the day of game seven and I landed just about 20 minutes before puck drop. And I remember I'm in the baggage carousel waiting for my luggage when Burroughs scores the goal that opens the game. And I wait at the airport at this luggage carousel, my wife going crazy. She's just like, can we just go? Can we just go? And I'm just like, we'll go at intermission. (laughs) So I literally make my wife like stand around for 40 minutes while I watch the first period. Obviously, she knew what she was getting into by then. And uh, and so. We get a cab and I get home, probably miss about two minutes of gameplay in the second period and watch the rest of the game at home with my wife. And the thing I remember probably most closely and obviously, look, I was a Canucks fan back then. I wasn't really like a full time blogger yet, even like that's how old this series was. (laughs) And, you know, I sort of stopped being a fan, I'd say, two years on or, or a year and a half on. Um, prefer for reasons of professional decorum. And, you know, by the time I've gone and worked for the Panthers and come back, like I really truly don't have any allegiance yep. to, to teams. I just, just to some of the people I know around the league who, I, who I'd like to see do well. So, uh, but then I was a really big Canucks fan and I remember the game tying goal, which we'll get into being one of the lowest moments that I've had as a sports fan in the history of my life. Hmm. Wow. That's a big, that's a big statement. I think, I think, well, I think part of what kind of gets into that is because of that sort of feeling of inevitability that you had as a Canucks fan, I'm assuming based on sort of how the Blackhawks had won the past two years. And then the fact that they saw this three, nothing lead slip away. And it just felt like it was just a matter of time. And when Tay scores that goal, it was like, Oh, here we go again. I, I wonder what the, uh, what the win probability was like before that. And then after that, especially like if you just like object, um, sort of personally took it in, in terms of like your emotional perspective on it. Yeah. Gotta be from your emotional perspective. It was 95%, right? Yeah. From the, in actual fact, it was probably like 49%. I mean, by the time you have 70 seconds left in the game and a penalty has been taken that will last for the whole contest, right? You have to mm-hmm. think the game's done. And, you know, I talked to Alain Vigneault about it when the Canucks ran through Philadelphia this season. And Vigneault's like, the only thing I really remember about that goal is that I put two Ds on. Because <laughs> the Canucks had a 1D setup on their second unit that season. And I just think it's funny, like, even then, nine years on, right? He's like, doing the classic coaches, you know, well, I did what I could, (laughs) which I just think is remarkable. So yeah, at the time, I think actually at some point during this series, I created a Twitter account and I decided to, uh, I still hadn't started blogging yet, but I decided that I had some takes that I had to fire off and uh, I felt very inspired. I remember watching this game at a friend's house and 
thinking back to it, we actually ran out to get some more beers after regulation and a bunch of other people, I guess, had similar ideas. And so we were like held up there for a while and we almost missed the winner because it happened so quickly into overtime. Um, and then I just remember the party on the streets after. Um, it was just right. nuts. Everyone was high-fiving, chanting, like climbing bus stops. It, I guess in hindsight, it was like an ominous foreshadowing for what could happen if that energy was channeled in a negative light. Um, but I, I don't know. It just feels like people were genuinely here happier when the Canucks beat the Blackhawks in round one than they were at any point when they beat the Predators or the Sharks in the ensuing rounds and actually made the Stanley Cup final. And so that kind of just speaks and, and captures the um, the mindset and also the stakes in this series, even though it was just a round one matchup, it had such a sort of uh, back emotional backdrop to it that raised the stakes so much further than your traditional round one matchup. Yeah, no, and and that's right. The the two previous years, right? And and what people need to remember about the two previous years too is, you know, and this was in the DNA of the Chicago Blackhawks and I think it's in the DNA of a Joel Quenville team. Like I think the Florida Panthers obviously had it this year when they just started this weird season salvaging streak um of just like overcoming four nothing deficits, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. like there's a, something about a Joel Quenville team that never says die. And so that first series in 2009, the Canucks take the first two games, uh, or sorry, the Canucks win game one and game three. And in game four, the Chicago Blackhawks are throwing their absolute fastball, like just dominant. And they catch a Duncan Keith Seabrook Taves line shift against Vancouver's fourth line, which at the time included... Ryan Johnson, he of the lowest ever Corsi four, right? <laughs> Dar- Darcy Hortichuk, right? Who, I mean, you know, uh, just a meatball. And uh, I can't even remember the other four. It might have been Rick Rippin. I think and it was, so, yeah. And so they catch them out, and it's like just they looked like the Sedin Twins, that, that group of Chicago players. They just controlled possession for 100 seconds. And... The fourth line breaks out against the grain, against a tired Chicago team, and uh, Darcy Hortichuk finishes the play and gives the Canucks a one-goal lead that ha- that stands up into the last 80 seconds of the game. And with 80 seconds left, Willie Mitchell tries to clear the puck. Um, Marion Hossa intercepts a, a goal kind of like the Burroughs goal, like not too dissimilar from the Burroughs game winner, which we'll get into and scores. So that's sort of the line between the Canucks being up three, one in the series and, and the series being tied. Vancouver doesn't win another game in the series. Patrick Kane eliminates the Canucks with a hat trick. The next year was the best version of the Chicago team, that 2010 team. Like their third line had Bufflin at right wing, Boland at center, and Andrew Ladd at left wing. Like literally just all guys who would go on to play, you know, first line minutes in the next season, really, because Chicago had to dismantle, right? And I mean, that team was an absolute juggernaut, and Vancouver probably didn't ever have a chance, but the Canucks win the first game 5 1. In the second game, they're up 2 nothing after the second period, and it looked like maybe this year season would be different, right? Like, Vancouver is about to, after the first period, you're thinking Vancouver is going to go home with a 2-0 series lead and have, you know, four chances or three chances to win this on home ice. And I remember it's a big Brent Seabrook hit seems to change the momentum. I know that's really old school hockey talk, not 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 generally for the PDO cast, but that's right. sort of how it went. 
anyway, Chicago goes on to win um, both that game and the two games in Vancouver. It goes back to Chicago down 3-1. Vancouver pulls one out. Really strong game from BX in that one, but Chicago sort of wins. So it's not just that Chicago had beaten Vancouver. It's that Chicago had shown signs of vulnerability in both series and in both cases turn the tide so decisively just so decisively and uh, done so in a way that really clowned the Canucks right like did it in a way that they were beating them up on the ice between the, both between the whistles and not um, you know Andrew Ladd and Bufflin had absolutely terrorized Luongo and so then you get into this 2010-11 season and the Canucks are like a perfect team probably the mm-hmm. best team in NHL history to not win the cup uh, or at least of the cap era maybe you can make the argument for the 18-19 Tampa Bay Lightning but you know based on the fact that the Lightning you know did did a lot less in the playoffs I think yep. you'd probably say you'd probably give the nod to Vancouver so uh, they come in and you know Versteeg, Bufflin, Ladd um, had all been offloaded, right? Like this was uh, Brian Campbell too. Like this was, oh no, no, sorry. Brian no, Campbell's Campbell was, in the series. Yeah. Campbell's, Campbell's actually matching up against the twins in this game. Yep. So, uh, sorry. So you, but you, either way, this team had been dramatically weakened year over year mm-hmm. and the Canucks seemed perfect. And you get down to this last game of the season. And I think this is a really important thing to remember. The Blackhawks lose to the Detroit Red Wings in an afternoon game. And it was a game where if they'd won, they would have punched their ticket. And because they lost, they were tied or they were had one point up on the Minnesota Wild. Sorry, that's wrong. The Dallas Stars. And this was a Dallas Stars team that had Louis Erickson on it, obviously, and uh, and was coached by Mark Crawford. So uh, they go into Minnesota and Minnesota barely ices an NHL team, right? Like three call up guys on the roster, like very much team that's out of the equation playing out the string. And again, Minnesota is down i think three to one or maybe it's maybe it's two to nothing but they're down by two goals going into the third period and this like (laughs) dallas team just chokes just completely chokes completely unjustifiably lose and as a result of that game the chicago blackhawks even qualify for the playoffs. So this Blackhawks team was actually had really good underlying numbers, no goaltending that year, and they shouldn't have even made it if Dallas could have just taken care of business. Dallas managed to do it. Jonathan Taves told me this year that after they lost to Detroit in Chicago, he goes home. He doesn't often drink, but he opens up a bottle and he just starts drinking while watching the game being like, this is my nightmare. I don't even control my destiny. Like, how how did we get here after winning the cup? And then he sees the Minnesota team come back. He threw the bottle out. He threw it into the garbage and was just like, fuck, let's go, boys. (laughs) Playoffs. Well. I mean, yeah, you mentioned like this rivalry had been percolating between these two teams for three straight playoffs. You've got actually when going back and watching, I think, um, you know, maybe it wasn't the highest quality of play, but that game six, the deciding game in 2009, where the wheels just completely come off in the third period. And, uh, I think it winds up being seven five, but there's a ton of goals in the third. That's probably, uh, the highest in terms of just pure entertainment value. But what stuck out to me was clearly by the time you got to this 2011 matchup, the pillars on both teams in, the, in terms of the core were still there, but there have been so much turnover, especially, I mean, the Blackhawks, we know that they had to give up all those guys because of cap implications or as uh, Razor Ray in this game says, uh, 
uh, cap augmentation or something. But um, for the <laughs> right. for for the Canucks too, like you just in that 2009 and even 2010 series, they've got like Mitchell and Olin and Shane O'Brien on the blue line. They've got the late Pavel Dimitra, Matt Sundin, like Bernier and Wellwood are playing these big roles, and it's a completely um, different roster and on the margins by the time they get into this matchup. But you know would age the best for me i guess it's kind of skipping ahead here but it it speaks to sort of setting the scene or the lasting legacy of this game was just the quality and depth of these teams and how overqualified it was for a round one matchup you spoke about how the blackhawks sort of limped in here and i think they were labeled this season as like the hangover hawks because they most notably like celebrated quite hard that summer and then lost a bunch (laughs) of players but they were really good. Like what what stuck out to me looking at these numbers is, you know, they limp in as the eighth seed with 97 points. I think the Ducks are like the four or five seed this year and they have 99 points. Like it was the the margin was that thin in the West. And a lot of those teams ahead of them did not have the underlying profile of the Blackhawks did here where in the final 20 games, which we know is a pretty good predictor of uh, playoff success, they were actually third best in shot share at like 55.9% and the Canucks were fourth. Um, You know, they're, first this year in terms of uh, just a bunch of underlying metrics. They're like a top five offensive team, uh, fifth at five on five, fourth overall. What was interesting was they decided to give because they, they let Antinemi walk or they couldn't afford him this summer. So they brought in Marty Turco as their backup and he's on his last legs. I mean, I think he's 36 years old at this point. They give him 27 games. He has like a sub 900 save percentage. So I think they threw away a bunch of points there. They kind of, slow played their way into it and so they fall into this round one matchup with the Canucks and just like speaking about the sort of profile or the resume that the Canucks had this year I'm gonna list off some accolades for them they scored the most goals (laughs) they gave up the fewest goals they win the president's trophy with 117 points they have the first ranked power play the third ranked penalty kill and the reward for that is this Blackhawks team, which arguably is the best team in the Western <laughs> Conference. And it was just so obscene. So just rewatching that, that was like the lasting legacy for me here, where it's like the Blackhawks looked like they weren't as good and they'd clearly lost some key players, but they still had that aura of them as the defending champions and they had that core in place, whereas the Canucks were the best team in the regular season, but they hadn't proven themselves. So they were trying to get over that hump, which is what sort of exacerbated all of the underlying issues or concerns about them when they blew that 3 nothing lead heading into this Game 7. Yeah. And two quick things. One is, and this is probably a little bit irrelevant, but I still need to bring it up. The Ducks with the 99 points, just because you brought them up, they they went on a crazy tear led by Corey Perry, who whose last 20 games of the 10-11 season are completely pornographic, like 14 goals, like just ludicrous. And as a result, he becomes probably the weakest heart trophy winner in NHL history, beating Daniel Sedin, just because he had the narrative heft of putting his team on his back. Um an absolute travesty, like a true travesty. One of the rare occasions when the Lindsay and the heart don't agree. Um, just, a just, a, a really an abysmal call by the professional hockey writers buying into the Perry thing and sort of indulging some Sedin fatigue since mm-hmm. Henrik Sedin had won the heart the, the year prior. And then the last point is Vancouver's, penalty kill dips in the last 10 games because Manny Malhotra obviously sustains that significant eye injury um, against the Colorado Avalanche with 10 games to go in the season, uh, sort of breaking up a third line that, you know, had it been intact, I think would have made Vancouver 
more flawless, right? Like a, a much more <laughs> difficult team to match up against, especially because of the way Vigneault used that line during that 10-11 season, right? Not only was were the Canucks sort of the first team to really be disciplined about zone matching, right? The Malhotra line started four defensive sh- zone shifts for every one they started in the offensive end. And that wasn't common at the time. Like other teams didn't employ that strategy yet. Now it's super common. Everyone does it. But back then the Canucks were kind of this new thing. Like no one else started 70% of their shifts in the offensive zone like the Twins did. Um, those sort of changes happened over time. Um, you know, now it, again, it's commonplace, but this Canucks team was cutting edge of that despite all of that crazy usage and, you know, Vigno using Malhotra's, uh, Malhotra's line as a hard matching line at home and hunting matchups for him on the, on the road, which created an environment where Ryan Kessler, who actually wins the Selkie trophy this season, yep. um, you know, is actually playing mostly third, like tertiary comp. And then he goes off for 41 goals, largely because mm-hmm. of his work at the net front on the power play, but also because all of a sudden he's just destroying fourth lines at five on five and completely changed the way that the Canucks were able to utilize the top end of their roster. For all of that, Malhotra's line outscored the opposition five on five, uh, had some pretty ugly Corsi four numbers, but th- at the end of the day, like they did their job. They, they changed the dynamic of how, Vancouver could attack their opponents and when Mahotra went down the Canucks actually opened the playoffs with Raymond centering their third line right. and by game by game seven they have LaPierre on their fourth line alongside I believe it's Hansen and, and it's not and yeah right and, and Higgins it's not Torres and um, as a result, you've got Kessler-Taves, right? Kessler and Taves are battling one another. Boland comes back in game four and sort of turns the series on its head. Mm-hmm. And he's the one sort of battling the Twins in a, in a hard match uh, in game seven. Yes. I mean, the Malhotra loss was obviously hurt them for any number of reasons. It really allowed them to play the way they wanted to and really free up the city. And the, the one thing, though, is rewatching this game, that trio of LaPierre, Higgins, and Hansen were probably the most dangerous line in the entire game. Like, I, I think they had probably like 10 great scoring chances. It was crazy how they were buzzing in this game. But I guess that just speaks to the, the depth this Canucks team had where you could lose a key sort of linchpin player like that down the middle and just kind of bring someone else back up and and have similar results so yeah i mean let's get into what age the best then here um what do you what do you have first in terms of what's age the best i I mean it's got to be it's got to be the burrow story right like Mm -hmm. the burrow story is why sportsnet's been criticized so hard for not having the patrick sharp backdoor chance and for not having the penalty shot goal because this game is the ultimate, but for the grace of God go I game, right? So you've got Campoli on one side who, you know, played pretty big minutes for Chicago in this series and averaged 20 that year for Chicago, for Ottawa, right? Like this is a guy who was a bona fide top four defender at the time. And, you know, granted he was playing a third pair role for Chicago, but really they were rolling 5D in this series because Coach Q didn't really trust Nick Letty ever. Mm-hmm. During his Chicago tenure. So uh, you've got Campoli on one side and you've got Burroughs on the other. And Burroughs, you know, obviously a controversial figure outside of Vancouver, widely beloved in this city. And, you know, you've got Burroughs scores the game opening goal, right? But 
He turns the puck over on the penalty kill that leads to the Jonathan Taves game tire. He considered, he says that he didn't back check hard enough. Like to this day, he thinks that that goal is his fault when he watches it on tape. He has a penalty shot opportunity in the third and takes what he considers to be the worst opportunity of his career. He takes what he calls, again, this is Burroughs' words, he calls it a lazy penalty in overtime that results in him being in the box when Patrick Sharp gets this grade A glorious chance backdoor mm-hmm. that Luongo gets his blocker on. And then finally, there's this moment where, you know, Campoli misflips it, Burroughs skates in alone, most iconic goal in Canucks franchise history. But the line between being a goat for all time and being the dragon slayer is so fine, right? It's so narrow. And I think that's just worth remembering in, in sports and especially for a guy like Campoli, who's working for the PA now, insanely bright, you know, just a, a great conversation, um, sort of didn't only played one more season and, and granted maybe his role in labor talks played a role in that too. But nonetheless, I think this moment sort of changed the trajectory of his career and it tr- changed the trajectory of Burroughs's legacy in a meaningful way. But the fact is Burroughs could so easily have been in Campoli's shoes. And that's just worth remembering when you talk about, think about sort of results versus process in hockey and, and everything that has to go into winning a game seven in overtime, like, you know, but for the grace of God, go Campoli and Burroughs, they're sort of united as two different sides of the coin here, but it so yep. easily could have been the reverse. He'll give it away. Campoli gave it away. Burroughs walks in. He's Well, and there's a couple other uh, key sort of crossroads moments here for Burroughs in this game where you mentioned he they're already up one nothing at this point. It pretty much all happens in the third period. He misses the penalty shot. Um, there's another sequence with like 12 minutes left where and this is partly Henrik Sedin's fault and, and him overpassing and sometimes, you know, preferring to do that rather than just take the easier shot route where he sort of surprises Burroughs on like a impromptu two-on-one and they don't wind up getting a shot on it because Burroughs isn't really ready for the pass, which I guess should be his fault considering he had spent so much time with Henrik Sedin and should know that a pass is probably coming at all times. Uh, There's another sequence here where he draws that penalty on Duncan Keith late in the game where he like comes in on a two on O basically with Kessler and he gets slashed or, or hooked by Keith from behind and draws a penalty, but he still has a clean look on net and he just winds up missing the net. And then obviously, um, you know, the events that you, that you outlined with transpiring with the Tave shorthanded goal and then the penalty in overtime, what I actually stuck out to me as well. And, um, it shouldn't be forgotten is in game six, the Blackhawks win that game in overtime, but I think it was the goal that made it two one Campoli turns the puck over to Burroughs in the slot for a goal and it's like eerily similar to this game seven right. overtime winner and and i don't see that talked about enough because it was like just re-watching that highlight i was like i don't even remember this sequence but it's crazy how similar it looked to the goal in the next game yeah and the blackhawks had made a game plan of going flippy high flip uh out of their zone especially if patrick kane is on the ice streaking down the wing and you know 
that's what Campoli says he sees, right? He sees Patrick Kane making a run for it, and he thinks if he can get this out of the zone high, there's at least a decent chance that they're going to get a two-on-one. And so I'm not surprised that it happened again. I think if you go back in the series, you'll see a lot of Chicago defenders flipping it out. Yeah. Um, you'll see a couple of them batted down. Uh, Vancouver forechecked hard in those situations, and Chicago you know, believed that at least with their top line on the ice, they had the speed to punish Vancouver if they could get that high flip play or go off the wall and so that was like a a real dynamic that both teams were aware of and conscious of and so you know it does show up a couple of times in this series in key moments and obviously in the key moment that turns out to be the deciding overtime winner yeah i thought the broadcast did a really good job pointing that out throughout the game where the canucks forecheck was just um in their sort of space and limiting their uh, ability to make kind of clean passes and clean decisions and it stuck out to me so there's before the game winner, there's this defensive zone draw and Coach Q brings out this makeshift combination of Kane Taves, Ryan Johnson, and his third D pair. And right before Campoli turns it over to Burroughs, Johnson actually does similar with pretty much an identical play where he goes off the boards and out and, and turns it right over to the Canucks. They don't wind up doing anything. They basically clear it back into the zone and then Campoli yeah. makes his turnover. But it, I think it was kind of this... Um, accumulation throughout the game and maybe even series of what the Canucks were doing to limit their time and space that kind of forced him to make what otherwise looks like kind of like this boneheaded mistake because he does have time to do something. I think it certainly was in the back of his mind kind of hearing those footsteps based on how the game had transpired to that point. 100%. And I think the, yeah, when you go watch, so it's a Ryan Kessler wrist shot designed to or win the draw, right? Like that's all that Kessler's trying to do when he takes the shot that Crawford freezes that leads to the, you know, makeshift sort of line that Q throws out just to be in responsible mode, clear the puck out of the zone, you know, not, not give up a goal here. And Vancouver never really touches the puck, but it's like 20 seconds of just them forechecking and sort of keeping this stress on Chicago prior to the Campoli mistake. And I think you're right. That's really crucial context to keep in mind. They were probably not under duress, but they were certainly under fire for about certainly 15 and maybe 20 seconds prior to Burroughs sort of making that turnover happen. So what is the best for me was I mentioned the quality and depth of these teams. I think the defense in particular, it's funny, we're just talking about how Campoli made this mistake. But if you just go back and watch this, I mean, I think that top fair top four for the Canucks with the Edler Airhoff pairing and then Hamus Bieksa and then even for the Blackhawks with Keith still in his prime here um, they wind up making a decision at some point because Seabrook does take that big hit from Torres and misses a couple games he comes back in and they split that pairing up and they've got they're sort of uh, bottle feeding Nick Letty a few minutes here there but we wind, we wind up finding out that he winds up having a nice career for the Islanders he's playing with Keith you've got that Campbell uh, Jalmerson pairing which basically becomes their sort of shutdown pairing against the Sidines in this series and I just think the quality of the fem- defensemen on both teams really stuck out to me when you watch today's game and it feels like there's kind of a dearth of quality defensemen where at any point you're watching any two teams in the league and there's like four or five guys probably that shouldn't even be playing that are playing big minutes just because I feel like there aren't enough quality defensemen to go around for 31 teams I, I think you're right and I think the fact is is that these teams are both probably about five years ahead of their time in terms of that construction 
And talking about the Canucks defense also reminds me of of one sort of funny footnote to this series that that I want to bring up just because it's amusing and tells you a lot about the 10-11 Canucks, right? The 10-11 Canucks were the team that Luongo, this is the first year of Luongo's mega extension, the one that has become the only contract for cap recapture in mm-hmm. NHL history. And so Luongo's got a $10 million salary this season, <laughs> but a $5.3 million cap hit. And that's kind of consistent throughout the Canucks lineup. Sammy Sallow in the summer gets injured playing floorball, right? Which allows the Canucks to put him on LTI. And right before Sammy Sallow returns, the Canucks opt for Alex Edler to undergo a, um, you know, a back surgery. It's a, to fix a disc in his back, but it's very much a elective surgery. And he probably could have returned a little bit earlier, but obviously they needed him to be out of the lineup so that they could, you know, for cap reasons, wait until the cap was lifted in the playoffs and then reinsert Edler into the lineup. And the Canucks, we now know, I don't think I've actually written this anywhere or talked about this, but I now know this. The Canucks wait. They hold Edler out of game one in the playoffs and (laughs) reinsert him for game two simply to make sure that there's no sort of raised eyebrows at the league's front office based on the chicanery that they've pulled in terms of the cap. But if but if Malhotra hadn't gotten hurt and obviously Samuelson gets hurt, um, he plays in this game on the line with the Twins, but he, he doesn't make it through the next series against Nashville. But if those two hadn't gotten hurt, the Canucks would have had a 70 million in actual salary in a season with a 50. million cap hit um, for the playoffs. And and that's just sort of the extent to which the Canucks streamlined their, um, you know, cap hits Hmm. to take an all in shot this season. And, you know, I think that's one thing to keep in mind. Obviously they don't get there. They don't win the cup, but in terms of managing the business side of the game, uh, to take that one shot, uh, I don't know that there's ever been a team that's done it better or more efficiently than this Vancouver team did. Well, and I don't think it's any coincidence that the team that probably does the most there in that department right now is the Leafs and uh, the common thread there with Lawrence Gilman in terms of the sort of 4D chess with like moving money around and looking for every single little uh, cap advantage that you can with all those machinations. I think uh, there's certainly something happening there as well. Uh, yeah (laughs) no question um um, you know so you along the lines of the blue line um the most impressive players just physically i think from rewatching this series especially now that we are almost a decade removed from it and we've watched a bunch of these guys play um in the meantime and certainly enter different points of their career and look different physically and even uh, exit the league over the past couple of years. I think for me, the three guys that I was the most blown away by watching um, was one Alex Edler. I think his mobility in this series and the hitting, I think throughout, like he gets Michael Froelich a couple times. There's one point where Patrick Kane's trying to exit the zone, I think in game two of this series and he has his head down and he's kind of reaching for the puck and Edler just cleanly absolutely destroys him and his ability to <laughs> cover ground and still be that big body presence is like watching this version of him. Now he's still effective and he's been so crafty and he's found different ways through his shot blocking and such to, um, remain in the league and eat up big minutes without losing that effectiveness. But it's just like an entirely different animal watching this 24 year old version prior to all of the injuries where he's just moving around so freely. Yeah. And he's, he's smarter now, right? Like he's, and he's meaner, he's meaner more consistently, right? Like 
those Edler hits you're talking about on for a leak, there's a famous one against Drew Doughty from the playoffs the year prior. Uh, th- those were like moments that you saw from Edler here and there. But really, he played the game like a skilled defender who was prone to the big mistake. And and now you watch Edler and Edler is mean every game. Like he's a tough customer at the net front along the wall. Like he's a pain in the ass. And he's so smart. The big mistake, like forget the big mistake. There's no mistakes in his game. And now, though, he's reached this point in his career where two things from this past season that I think are worth noting. One is the Canucks took him off the power play to sort of limit his ice time. And he still ends up, I think it's 33 points. He ends up with 33 points in 57 games. He's 16th among all NHL defenders in points rate this past season, like narrowly behind Quinn Hughes, who obviously outscored him by a wide margin because he had 25 power play points. So... Edler's continued to be offensively productive. Uh, the problem is, is that he's probably still Vancouver's best all-around defenseman, and that's a problem considering he's now 33. And if you look at the first 20 games of the season, right, Edler was like a 53% Corsi 4 guy while playing bona fide top number one D minutes. And if you look at the last 39 games, he's like a 45% Corsi four guy, even though he's playing a few less minutes because he's not playing on the power play. So they're at a point with him where when he's healthy at the start of the year, he's right. an unbelievably dynamic presence. The problem is, and, and as Vancouver becomes a team with credible playoff ambitions, which I think, you know, they're probably there. I mean, they outperformed their true talent level this season by a fair bit. But nonetheless, like they're going to need to figure out a way to make sure that they're getting that. Like, how do you get October Alex Edler in April? Because that's going to be a key part for this team if they're ever going to win around. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of... Uh seeds in in this game in particular i think people's frustrations uh maybe not even with Edler the player but more so the team like if you think back to what last year where uh, everyone was clamoring for quinn hughes to get on the top power play and instead we're just seeing alex edler just teeing off from the point with these low percentage shots there's a lot of that in this game i, I love the canucks defense and I, I love the aggression in particular they're pinching like crazy they're trying to get in the play there's numerous times throughout the series where bx is randomly around the net and you're just like why is a defenseman there and I, I love that mentality or they were attack 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 but in this game what really stuck out to me was there was so much like low to high play where they were just it seemed like they're maybe the, it was what the Blackhawks were doing defensively where they weren't allowing them anything else but it was just a lot of low percentage point shots and just watching Edler tee off from the point in this game I was like oh I've seen a lot of that over the years <laughs> yeah and well and look I think the other thing that's worth talking about is this Ham Hughes BX a shutdown pair that the Canucks roll throughout this playoff series like if you were going to chart what sort of set this Canucks team apart from some of the other iterations that didn't have as much playoff success. I think you have to start with Bieksa, Ham Hughes, and then Kessler and Henrik, right? Like mm-hmm. that mix gave them the down the middle fortitude that one C two C first pair D sort of players. And, and I know Edler plays more in this game, but nonetheless, like BX and Ham Hughes are the pair hard matching uh, against Chicago's best. 
Yep. They're mean. They're two way. They play a really, really great game. And uh, and th- their contributions, not just in this game, but throughout this series uh, and throughout this playoff run for the Canucks was like a big, big part of what permitted Vancouver to be as successful as they were. Well, and Hamus' stick work in particular, like he just single handedly neutralizes uh, Patrick Kane, I think, especially in this game. Like you could see how frustrated he was just trying to do his typical stuff where he's like dancing into the offensive zone with control. And Hamus is just stopping that. And it's funny just to go back to the two prior series before Hamus came to Vancouver where they just had no answer for him. Whereas in this, I think he doesn't have a single five on five goal in this entire series. And it was funny kind of going through that down the rabbit hole, just looking back to that sort of summer before this where I think what the Flyers and the Penguins both trade for Hamuse's rights to try to sign him and then he winds up taking less than people were offering as the hometown discount and we saw his value to this team when he gets injured in the Stanley Cup final and, and isn't the same and and so um that, that stuck out to me watching that where I was like damn he was so good during this time yeah, it's the, I call it Hamusian here and there. And the guy who I notice do this the best in the NHL right now is uh, Provorov in Philadelphia, in my opinion, anyway. And the the thing that you note is Dan Hamhus, when you watch him in his prime, it's just like it's all angles and he like doesn't ever make the move. He just keeps the players so uncomfortable that they sort of end up skating themselves into a non-dangerous area <laughs> along the wall. And that's like, he just does that repeatedly. It's just like his gap is so disciplined that players play themselves quietly out of dangerous spots. And he lets the other player just do that. And Provorov, I noticed do it a fair bit. Uh, you know, I, I pointed it out, um, in an armies when the Canucks played the Flyers because it just stood out to me so significantly. But it's a very Hamhusian quality. Um, that's, that's actually pretty rare, especially as we've gotten to a point in the NHL where, you know, uh, some of these offensive players are so fast that the idea of maintaining a gap on any of them is, is kind of a joke. So I mentioned Edler as the player who stuck out to me most physically impressive in terms of the rewatch. I think Kessler as well with those long strides. I think uh, the move he makes to set up the first Burroughs goal in this game where he catches Keith off guard when they're, sh- they're, in they're changing and, and he goes kind of in and out and just blows right past him out wide. I just forgot like how powerful those like uh that second gear he could hit in those long strides and how much ground he could cover and the other in a much more sort of cerebral opportunistic way was patrick sharp where it felt like throughout this he whenever he had the puck on his stick you're like oh god something something dangerous is going to happen here i think he has eight shots in this game he's probably their most dangerous offensive player and you know he's on this second line with marion hosa and, and they're just wrecking havoc as the series goes along and i'd forgotten um just kind of what a nightmare he was in the offensive zone yeah, no, 100%. Kessler, Kessler's physical assertiveness is <clears throat> such an underrated part of what he brought. And uh, a big reason why now, you know, he's retired, right? Like he's <laughs> yeah. retired. At, he's 33 and he has a, you know, hip replacement and uh, on and on. Like he had this hip surgery that essentially ended his career, not officially, but essentially and cashing the checks right and he did it he did it so that he could continue to walk and play with his kids right like he's banged up and he's banged up because of the way that he played um it's a lot of fun to watch like he was a lot of fun to watch just because of how you know he had this speed size combo and a complete and absolute fearlessness on the ice Uh, it was tremendous and then to touch on hosa further i think hosa like 
my analogy for Hosa is, you know, when you play Mario Party or Mario Tennis and you've got the big guys and you've got the fast guys and then you've got Mario who can do a little bit of everything yep. like that's that's Marion Hosa. And Hosa was also reputed to watch like a crazy amount of video. And I used to informally in my head sort of subject defenseman on the Canucks to the Marion Hosa test, which was how did Marion Hosa play uh, that defender one-on-one on the rush? So with Christian Erhoff, he was big enough that he'd always put his shoulder in and try and take him wide with a power move. And with like Andrew Alberts or someone, he'd go into the corner and be like, I can beat you there. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the Marion Hosa test was something to watch. Um, the, something that I just always sort of like jokingly made up and, and tracked myself because it was like, if Mar- how, how Marion Hosa thinks he can beat you beats beats how marion hosa thinks you can be beat is (laughs) the way that you can be beat like i trust him more than i trust any coach analyst or broadcaster take what he does and and treat that as gospel well and i think the broadcasters throughout this series make a point of attributing the reason why it turned around to dave boland coming back in game four and completely shifting it and annoying the cities and there's certainly a part of that but i think in just the rewatch um you know when the Canucks go up three nothing in Game Four in Chicago. The Blackhawks wind up winning pretty routinely, and everyone sort of chalks it up to it's kind of like that one final stand at home. The Canucks will take care of business in Game Five, and I think on like the first shift of the game, Jim Houston saying in Game Five, like, "Oh, Marion Hosa hasn't scored yet in this series," and he just scores a goal, and then he has another breakaway after that in Game Six on the overtime winner by Ben Smith. He basically single handedly like uses his frame to get the puck into the offensive zone and create that opportunity for him, and then it was like him sort of asserting himself and doing Marion Hosa things is also, I think, a big reason why this series wound up getting so tight towards the end in Game 7. Yeah, uh, you're right. The Boland impact, look, the fact is, though, is both guys, like guys on both teams believe in it, right? Like they all, they all think that Dave Boland changed the series. So, you know, I, I can't sort of override it. But look, the Twins dominated when Boland was on the ice throughout this series. It's just that all of a sudden Chicago started getting every save and uh, the Canucks sort of stopped finishing, right? Like they didn't have, um, even in this game, a ton of offense on the way out, right? Like they were winning the games early in the series by a relatively wide margin. And all of a sudden, with the exception of the first game, uh, that Boland comes back in Vancouver scores three and still loses like Vancouver scores one, two, two, right? They, they yep. score five goals going away. And I just tend to think that that's finishing luck because when you look at the underlying sort of numbers in this game, anyway, like Boland plays 10 34 against Henrik Sedin head to head and the Canucks outshoot the Blackhawks seven, one in those minutes, uh, seven, three by scoring chances. Like to me, that's not, a sign that Boland's completely shut them down. That, that to me anyway, is a sign that, you know, Corey Crawford had what might, might've been the game of his life. Yeah. We're going to get more into Corey Crawford here in a second. I think a couple other things that I had, what age the best was, and we've sort of touched on it, but tangentially, but just how all the key players in this game are either in their prime or close enough to it. And it speaks to the quality of it. Um, it, it was interesting going back and thinking about this. I think what age the best was just, the entire process of the previous summer, um, the Sharks offer shooting Nicholas Jalmers. And I remember at the time thinking four years, 14 million for him was a bit pricey. And he winds up 
playing a huge shutdown role in this series and obviously winds up having a great career as one of the sort of uh, most talked about defensive defenseman shutdown guys in the league. But I love that sequence because the Sharks, and we so rarely see it and bemoan the teams are unwilling to do that, is they're this Western Conference rival with the Blackhawks and they see this opportunity to strike and they basically offer Shee Jalmerson knowing that the Blackhawks will probably retain them. But then that handcuffs them and they wind up just stealing Antiniemi for $2 million because the Blackhawks <laughs> now can't afford to financially keep them. And it just brings me back to this past summer where the Blackhawks were in the similar, or the Sharks were in a similar spot financially where they had guys like LeBanc and Timo Myers RFAs. And I was like, please, someone just offer sheet both guys and steal one of them for way below market value and the sharks just wind up getting away with it and it's funny to look back at now where people talk about oh offer sheets don't work you know they didn't get nicholas jammers and it's like it was part one of a two-step process where it clearly wound up working out for the sharks and i'd love to see more of that well and they weakened arrival and yes. caused chicago to make even more difficult decisions than they'd already had to make and mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I agree with you. That was that was a lot of fun. And, and we just haven't seen a ton of it. Right. Uh, kudos to Doug Wilson. I just wish it happened more. Um, the idea that the idea that offer sheets don't work is compelling. Right. Like teams, players don't change teams very often that way. Uh, but, you know, when when people point out to me that they don't think offer sheets work and, and we talk about this sort of 2010-11 Canucks team and the management behind it, like they offer sheeted David Backus, right? They yeah. they actually came into this sort of cons- considering that offer sheets could be used more creatively. I know they got pretty close to um, – potentially doing a series of one-year offer sheets or one-year deals for Jordy Ben. They had this idea that they'd sign Jordy, uh, sorry, Jamie Ben, Jamie ben yeah. to, to one-year offer sheets for four years, just walk him to UFA <laughs> so they could get him. And I, I, you know, it's known too that they met with uh, Shea Weber before Shea Weber signed his offer sheet with Philadelphia. Yeah. But, but by that point, they actually didn't believe that Nashville, like they thought Nashville had to protect their market. They thought that any Weber offer sheet would be matched no matter how toxic you made it. And, and that I think proved true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they met with Weber and said, look, we, we can't, the only way we can get you is if you, um, you know, don't sign. Like if you, if you take a one year deal, um, if you sign an offer sheet with us, you're not going to end up in Vancouver. So, but it's a similar, I think you, you think about offer sheets from the team side often, but I think from a player side, just reading about that in hindsight, it, it seemed like John Merson wanted to stay in Chicago, but he also wanted his money up front. And so he basically used the Sharks to get what he wanted and wound up working out for him. And it reminded me of what Sebastian Ajo did this year, where he kind of got his cake and eat it too, where he gets the Habs to sign him to this offer sheet, forces the Hurricanes hand to pay him right now, but also becomes a UFA um, when he can get paid again. And so kind of, it's funny from a player perspective, which we rarely talk about with offer sheets. Yeah. And I think again, the fact of the matter is, is the idea that offer sheets don't work is compelling, but we also haven't seen them used efficiently enough, widely enough to, to have the data set to conclude that they couldn't be effective in an environment where teams were properly competing with one another for the services of second and third contract guys. Hmm. 
the last what age the, be- age the best I had was just this general sort of the storyline of this rivalry and the Canucks embracing the heel turn and the jerk puck era and all of Canada turning on them and, and the league. It was funny watching this game. I'd forgotten that Mike Gillis goes on this rant after game six about how they're being officiated and how I think the penalties were like 27 to 16 or something for the series in favor of the Blackhawks and, and how they felt like, uh, you know, the league had turned on them because they had been viewed as the villain. And so, so it, I just, I love that, that story and that additional layer of, um, the team just embracing kind of what made them special. And also it just feeding into this rivalry where these two teams really, really did not like each other. Yeah. And I think Jason Botchford, the late Jason Botchford told, tells, told this story. Uh, and you know, I, I've, I've never had it confirmed beyond sort of Botchford's story, but there's apparently a story that, um, you know, as as you'd expect of that 1011 Canucks management group, uh, they went to the rule book, they went to the bylaws and they were like, what can we say that will for sure get us fined to take some pressure off the off the players? And uh, and that sort of led to Gillis's rant. The other thing I think we do have to discuss because it's so crazy, like this game only happened or this series only happened nine years ago. But at one point in this series, Rafi Torres absolutely trucks. Yep, behind the net. Brent Seabrook behind the net. And it's clearly a suspendable hit, like like so very obviously. And Rafi Torres had also been suspended for the first two games of the series for a questionable hit on Jordan Eberle, right? So that's the context here. Like this guy just got suspended, throws a clearly suspendable hit on Brent Seabrook behind the net. Chicago's furious, apoplectic. And the league rules that, in fact, the hit is not suspendable because it happened in the killing zone, Hmm. like the killing zone, which is a term that no one has ever used in the sport of hockey except for this. And no one has ever used since, probably because NHL concussion lawyers were like pulling at their collars, being like, what are you doing? The killing zone. (laughs) But it's just this moment in time where the league justified this clearly heinous hit as being fine because of the location that it occurred on the ice, the killing zone. It's just wild. Like that is that that to me is like you might as well have people smoking in the stands or like media filing stories you know on typewriters and then faxing them in like it's just nuts that that happened this you know in in the decade we just exited um you know uh, not counting the decade that is the month of march well especially when you watch this series where it's it's played in a pretty modern fashion i think right like we talked about how the teams were five or six years ahead of uh their their peers at this time like it it's it, it's weird to line that up with uh with how the game's actually being played because it's not like you you've got a bit of john scott in this series and you know you have tanner glass but it, for the <laughs> most part these are two pretty skilled teams playing at a high pace it's not like uh when i did the 2013 leafs bruin series where they've got like fraser mclaren and colton Orr out there it's, it's right it, so it's it's weird definitely there's a dichotomy john- there john scott at the net front of pp1 for the first two games of the series by the way like Come on. We'll get into John Scott. Um, okay. <laughs> what age the worst? Um, here's one that I had rewatching this. How many borderline plays, and this might be a personal thing, but just rewatching it, like how many times a team enters the offensive zone? And I'm like, ooh, that was very close to being offside. And I feel like I've been just so conditioned now over the past couple of years with the challenges and with the review where it's like when you watch NFL these days and and you have a successful passing play and then you're just waiting to see if a flag pops up that's going to wind up calling it back. There were so many plays in this game where I was like, I think that 
probably could have been offside. It doesn't wind up being a goal, so it doesn't matter. But it just it's totally changed my viewing experience and frame of mind going back and watching these games. I agree with you 100 percent. And also, um, I find like I have a pretty good eye for the game. I've watched it so often and I know you do, too. And I find when the playoffs roll around and there's a close entry right now, now that I know that it's going to come back, if it's uh, if it is, in fact, offside, I can enjoy what happens. Right. Like it kind of ruins the incentives for me as a viewer, just Mm -hmm. like as an enjoyer of hockey, because I know that whatever just happened might be nullified. And I find that deeply unenjoyable. Right. Like I actually hate the review apparatus. Like I don't think VAR improves soccer. I don't think reviews improve hockey. Um, I don't care that much if we're right or wrong, so long as it's not completely ridiculous like that one Matt Deshane example. Um, Basically, I think reviews should be rarer than they are. And I think the idea of a play being onside or offside by a millimeter doesn't matter. And the way that we currently do it with reviews is, uh, you know, abysmal. But I agree with you that that does age badly. I also think just the volume of point shots that you see, mm. you know, and you already commented on it, but uh, on the power play, especially right. Um, ever since sort of that Chicago, uh, sorry, that Columbus power play with uh, Zach Wierenski and Sam Gagne up top, right? Like teams are so much more efficient about where they're shooting from five on four. And if you watch this series, there's just so many point blasts. Here's what is the worst Taves versus Crosby debates. Oh, this, this was this was I think a couple years before the peak of it. I think after the Blackhawks won the 2013 title, there was much more of it. But I remember at this time it was it was starting to percolate, especially after Crosby had his concussions and the Penguins had a few uh, early playoff exits. Whereas the Blackhawks were playing late into the spring every 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 year, and there this was. I know it sounds ridiculous now, but I do remember at the time there were like legitimate people who are paid for their hockey opinions that were unironically suggesting that Jonathan Taves was a better player to the point where Mark Spector in 2014 has an article where he says that he pulled four out of five NHL scouts and they told him that they would choose Taves to build around because he worked harder and his team has had more success. I mean, this is this is the same person that brought us the 200 hockey men. So I'm not sure if the five scouts actually got pulled for this story. But this was like a thing that and people online were ridiculing it at the time. But I think it was a much more pervasive opinion than uh, than you'd like to believe this many years out. Uh, No question. And that all of that said, the Taves game time goal here is ridiculous. Yeah, is as willful. Right. A, A goal as you'll ever see in hockey like that was as, you know, clutch as impressive um as unlikely like as heroic frankly as anything that i've seen an individual hockey player do Hmm. uh in in a high stakes game in in my time watching nhl hockey if the blackhawks win that game that taves goal is like you know a postage stamp in the state of illinois like it is that impressive and you know i don't think it's remembered i think Blackhawks fans maybe remember it. Um, I think there's some people who do. Canucks fans certainly remember it as the low point of their fandom. <laughs> but the but the fact of the matter is is that that play was so spectacular, uh, so unlikely, such a remarkable individual effort that it should be remembered more widely than it is. And it's just unfortunate. I mean, it's just unfortunate for Taves anyway that this goal that could be the signature play of his career ends up sort of 
you know, falling by the wayside just because his team doesn't win. And he's pretty quiet in the series. I think a lot of it has to do with him and Kessler certainly kind of canceling each other out. But you know, I, yeah, I, I agree that's, with that. I think that's his that's his first goal in the series. Seabrook, Jonathan Taves for Chicago tries to make it happen. Here's Hosa. Stop by the logo. They score. Jonathan Taves has tied it. It's it's a great individual effort. And listen, if he gets 449 points in his next 41 games, he'll match Sidney Crosby for his career. And uh, we can have <laughs> I think I think he could do it. I mean, he's got 41 games in hand, so it's a lot of points. But um, he's a good player, so we'll see. I think uh, the Canucks handling of goalies. I don't, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's. It's tough because just kind of going back to it, I remember at the time it was obviously a hot topic and, and how it wound up playing out with them winding up trading both guys and, you know, they're kind of having this uh, this low point before Jacob Markstrom obviously becomes what he has over the past year and a half. But just rewatching these games, I thought in particular, like games one and three, Roberto Longo was outstanding. And I thought athletically he was it's ridiculous. Like he was stretching out and making these crazy uh, lateral side to side saves. Obviously, game four and five, things unraveling, gets pulled in both. But just diving back into this world and and a decision to to start Corey Schneider in game six after the year Roberto Luongo had had, and then he gets injured on the on the penalty shot, and then they have to go back to Luongo in game seven, and he's really good. Just all of that, it was like it feels like another lifetime ago. Yeah, it does. And I think this also started, this was the first series that Vancouver flopped goalies um, in the decade. But as it played out, there was never another series the Canucks played where a goaltending controversy didn't essentially undermine them, right? Like the Kings series, they go away from Luongo. The San Jose Sharks series, they again go away from Luongo. And then the 14-15 season, they go away from Eddie Lack, who really carried them to the playoffs with like a 9-2-5 save percentage in the last 25 games, which I only remember because he just retired, so I looked it up yesterday. Right. And um and play ryan miller in game six ryan miller just can't get post to post like miller was a really good goalie in his time in vancouver but he just wasn't right and the flames eliminate a 3-0 canucks lead in a decisive game six um you know and that was sort of the last time the canucks were in the playoffs so you know i do i agree with you i think this does in, in a lot of ways sort of chart the path forward for a Canucks team that, you know, I, I think did ultimately mismanage that situation. Although, you know, now that we've had five years hence, you look back and they got Markstrom, who was a bona fide NHL starter and a high end NHL starter based on his performance over the last two years. And Bo Horvat, who is a 60 point second line center. I mean, that's not a not a bad return for 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 those two players. But you'd certainly do wonder if. For example, if the Canucks had been able to make Corey Schneider the centerpiece of a Jeff Carter deal in 2012, right, with Columbus, who were looking for goaltenders and ended up trading for Sergei Bobrovsky, a situation that worked out pretty well for them, Hmm. um, you know, you certainly do wonder if maybe there was more uh, that the Canucks could have done if they just sort of ridden with Luongo and been a little more comfortable uh, with that scenario uh, throughout this sort of time frame. Well, I wonder if it just, unfortunately for them, they just came around too early because uh, in the landscape of the NHL at this point in time, it was still very much a, 
workhorse number one guy who starts 60, 65 games and then kind of your more traditional veteran backup to the point where the Canucks for years have like Andrew Raycroft and, and various uh, veteran backups in lieu of Corey Schneider being up there at this point this year, he, he plays 25 games. He's ridiculous. He's a 927 save percentage, but he's already 25 years old at this point in time. And it felt like every time Schneider would play, it was kind of like a slap in the face to Longo where it's like, he's earned this. He's the number one. He should be playing more. Whereas I think if in 2020, ideally you would just be like, both guys are going to play 40 ish games because a lot of teams are doing, I think it's much easier to justify, um, in the room just because it's so much more of a, a regular common occurrence around the league. And it's not sort of uh, intended to be an insult to a number one goalie. So I wonder if it would have been more accepted or if, you know, just because of Luongo's contract, it, it never would have been uh, a situation where they could have accommodated it. Uh, I think this is a really good point And one that at some point, probably during this lockdown, um, because I've got some time on my hands, I may revisit at greater length because I do think Luongo's career would be looked at so much differently if he had been managed the way a modern goaltender is. And and Luongo's longevity is unrivaled, right? Like, literally, the guy, one of three goalies to play a thousand games, you know, played it in an era that's more demanding for goaltenders. Like, the other guys who've done it, I mean, Patrick Waugh was the other but- butterfly goalie, but, like, you know, Brodeur never tested his hips quite as strenuously as as a guy like Luongo did over the course of his career, for example. Um, But, you know, Lou, for example, the year that he was a heart candidate in Vancouver, played 76 regular season games. Like, he was at 90 games for the season by the time they ended up in the second round. Um, You know, with Luongo, he he ends up sort of at that 80-plus mark by... Um, you know, the Stanley Cup final, and all of a sudden you've got this goaltender who's either going to be lights out or not good enough, right? Like, and that's sort of what you saw from Lou in the in the Stanley Cup final. He was either getting a shutout or he was, you know, getting lit up. And I do wonder how much sort of, you know, the load that he carried throughout the season uh, impacted that. You know, Vancouver already was, you know, at a 60-22 split by the time you get to 10-11. But you do certainly think that he they would have been more in like a Tukarask Dobby kind of management yep. platoon where Lou played max 50 uh, if this team plays sort of 10 years on. And what would that have meant for how Luongo would have looked in June? Um, you know, we'll never know. But uh, but I think for me anyway, that's a that's a big all time. What if? Well, not only does he have that 76 game season in his first year with the Canucks, but he has it's a four year stretch where he has 72, 75, 76 and 73 games in those four years. And looking back at it, it's funny because one of my unanswerable questions was like, why was Roberto Luongo's career so polarizing? And throughout this series, and you can hear it in this broadcast when they're previewing it, 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 it feels like he it's all on his shoulders where he's got to prove himself and he's got to kind of rid these demons that the Blackhawks had, had uh, instilled upon him over the past couple of years. And he's been pulled twice in this series, but he was remarkable in this season in those 60 games. I think he was top five in goal saved above expected. And just, throughout his career just and the longevity but also the peaks that 0304 season before the lockout while he's still with the Panthers he's got this 931 save percentage in 72 games and it was funny to look back at it now because I think he winds up being second in Vesna voting and Brodeur winds up winning it and it's largely because the Panthers somehow despite that 931 save percentage go 28 35 and 19 
and <laughs> they're leading the league. Yeah. In, they're leading the league in goals again and in shots against. Um, I think they're averaging thirty-five shots against per game. The Devils and Broder one wins the Vesna this year are twenty-four shots against per game. Um, he's he faces five hundred more shots than literally any other goalie in the league. I think second was Mark Denis on the uh, on the Blue Jackets, and it was just obscene. And he had that a couple times throughout his career. I think he finished top four in Vesna voting four or five times, and you know he doesn't really have any of that hardware beyond the Olympic gold medal. But it was just like revisiting all this and his number career in totality, but especially at this time when he was so good and the conversation or the discourse was always about whether he was good enough. And it seems now we've had a bit of distance from his career. So it just seems so silly now, but this was like a legitimate topic of conversation at this time. Well, your friend and mine, Kevin Woodley has a great story about Luongo after winning the gold medal. And he goes and does a couple like rights holder interviews or whatever, and then walks past the mix mix zone and he sees Kevin. And this is Luongo like right after he's won gold, right? Like to this point in his career, the most, you know, the biggest win, uh, he's, you know, started for a team that won the gold medal on home ice in the city that he plays for professionally, right? Like just as cool a moment as you're going to get as a pro athlete. And he walks through the mix zone and sees Woodley and just says, you'll never guess what they asked me. Everything they wanted to talk about was the game tying goal and how I'd screwed it up. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, that was the conversation around Lou from the bathroom break to, you know, that hat trick that Patrick Kane like scored that we've already talked about, but that's a seven, five loss for the Canucks, right? Um, To the Blackhawks that season, Uh, there was beginning to be this narrative around Lou that he got the yips and you know for me anyway i think that was unfair i still think that's unfair i tend to think that if luongo had been rested a little bit differently um you would you would have seen a very different playoff track record and even with all of what we're talking about uh, i believe roberto luongo's playoff safe percentage is like maybe maybe two percentage points below his regular season save percentage for his career which is roughly what you'd expect from a guy who you know faces better shooters <laughs> once you get to the postseason right he has a 919 save percentage for his regular season career and a 918 save percentage for his playoff right. career so and indistinguishable just, just consistency over a large period of time with yeah. with highs and lows certainly but i think that's much more about the position than it is uh some sort of fatal flaw of his character or his play um all right do you have any other what age the worst or do you want to move into a sort of the turning point in the most rewatchable sequences yeah let's uh let's move in i mean clearly you know the final couple minutes of regulation the canucks have a couple chances to go up to nothing and then it flips with the shorthanded goal by Taves, I'd say that entire sequence is clearly sort of the the turning point or when this game really um, reaches its peaks in terms of drama and just like entertainment value. Is there like a specific point? If, if you know, viewers don't want to for every reason, go back and watch this full game. Like when should they tune in? Yeah, I'd say what 12 minutes to go in the third is about when Burroughs gets the penalty shot. Right. And, uh, and so I would go, from I would go from there and just watch the rest of it because by that point you can cut the tension with the knife. Uh, you get the you know Canucks getting a few late chances. I mean, here's the here's the other thing that people don't remember is like the Canucks were up one nothing and probably played the best period that ten eleven team played in at any point 
in the second period, right? The second period is when that LaPierre line starts to assert itself and get all these chances. The Sedins are just spending shift after shift in the offensive end. That Kessler line is buzzing, creating havoc. Like that second period was a championship caliber second period. And Corey Crawford is just stopping puck after puck after puck, like playing so, so well. And they can't break through and so, I mean, that second period stands out to me, but I do think once you get to that Burroughs penalty shot, you get all of the drama in a pretty tight sort of band of time, like 20 minutes on the game clock, probably 35 minutes to watch it if you're if you have no commercials. And, you know, you get that Taves goal, that unbelievable play uh, mm-hmm. from, you know, one of the great winners, uh, not not one of the best players, but one <laughs> of the great winners of the yeah. last decade of hockey and. You know, you get that overtime sequence and, and you know, the history that's made with uh, with Burroughs and Campoli there. Yeah, this in the rewatch, that save by Luongo, which Sportsnet um, omitted in their rewatch with that save. I mean, especially now, like with all the uh, sort of numbers we've had to quantify where teams are actively doing that sort of behind the net passing it out front because the goalie can't see where the puck's going and doesn't have time to react that bang bang play it's such a common uh scoring play in today's game and Taves makes that perfect pass out from behind the net to sharp and he's just point blank wide open like a minute into overtime and part of it was the puck was bouncing and I think he didn't get cleanly to it part of it was just sort of this instinctual athletic save by Luongo but just that that moment it was like it felt like time stopped for a second and the fact that he saved that was just remarkable Taves down low looking in front So again, I, I've been fortunate enough to talk to every single guy uh, involved in this play about it. Bieksa thinks he was too aggressive um, in lying down on the ice as he did to deny the pass. He thinks, you know, you're going to surrender great A's, but that was probably too good a chance to surrender at that point. Um, he just wanted to make Taves uh, take a second and not go back door, like not do a stuff play on Lou, which was something that they'd done pretty regularly. Taves thinks that BXO lying in the ice the way that he did caused him to take a sec that usually he could make a cleaner pass to Sharpie for the back uh, sorry to Patrick Sharp for the backdoor um, shot uh, but that he had to skate around BX and it gave Lou an extra second and also took away um, any need for Luongo to cheat short side um, Sharp says that he never felt at any moment in that sequence, like he had the game on his stick. He thought he had a good chance. And if he shot it high, you never know if it can go, you know, through a guy's arm. Um, But he thought based on what he was looking at, that Lou would have a good chance to make the push and get across. Luongo never saw sharp. He just knew that he'd be there. And he thinks he was fortunate to get his blocker on it because those are such dangerous plays. Even when you have the time that you're comfortable, you're going to get the push uh, to make it. So it's sort of interesting when you, you know, it's a, it's a play that I've rewatched 10 times. And even to this day, all of the four main characters involved in it don't exactly agree on sort of how it went down, how it could have gone differently. Um, you know, the the offensive players like, man, I, I did everything I could to get it there. But the defender played it well. The defenders just like, man, I still gave up too good a chance. The shooters like I never felt like I had it for sure. And the goaltender thinks he was lucky. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just sort of a, a nice a nice amalgamation when you sort of summarize those opinions, um, you know, that sort of points you in the same direction 
that so much of the rest of our conversation is gone, which is when you get into a single game elimination, you know, contest between two pretty evenly matched teams, like randomness and luck matter so much, despite our, you know, instinct to ascribe morality and all this other things to the results. Yeah. I think in hindsight, I, I'm pretty vocal about my rule of thumb defensemen should not leave their feet. So I don't know. I, I disagree with BX's uh, game plan there. But even, um, even on the even on the penalty kill. I mean, there's certainly a time and place for it. I just think in general, like you are leaving stuff up to chance much more opening uh, different avenues for them to attack. I don't, I don't know. I, I just no, generally I, I think it. I think teams are moving in that direction very rapidly. Uh, it's one thing I notice now in preseason is you'll see guys trying to make the team sell out to block shots, and yeah, you just like, don't that. <laughs> you just don't see a lot of guys go yard sale in the NHL anymore. Um, generally speaking, guys are on their skates, and that's for the reason that you've sort of suggested, uh, which is that you know also in a sport where you're always attacking and defending at the same time um, symmetrically, uh, you know losing your ability to quick gather the puck in transition uh, is a pretty significant downside yep all right biggest heat check performance do you, is there anyone who really stuck out to this i mean i think alex burrows is is plays too big of a role on this team for it to be kind of a heat check obviously him scoring both goals but is there any kind of like surprising performances in this that just blew you away on the rewatch well look i think i think i've got to give it to kessler um when i think about Kessler's game and how he played and the fact that he was matched up against Jonathan Taves and the fact that without Manny Malhotra in the lineup, he starts 14 times in the defensive end and only four in his own end. Uh, Nonetheless, the Canucks have a 56% shot attempt share, uh, 55% shot share uh, on ice for two goals, four zero against uh, his, you know, skating ability. His four checking uh, really stands out throughout the game. Like, you know, to to use a bad analogy, I think that Kessler essentially pitched like a nine inning shutout, right? For, right. If he were a pitcher, um, for, in terms of the quality of the two way game that he played. So usually he check would uh, obviously sort of correlate to offensive generation scoring. Um, no percentage benefit for Kessler here, but right. just in terms of the way that he assertively tilted the ice in the toughest matchup, um, you know, I think this is as good a two way game as you're going to see any player play in hockey at this level. Um, that's what Kessler turned in in this game. It was essentially a perfect game. My biggest heat check performance is Corey Crawford. I know it wasn't a losing effort, but I remember at this time having a bit of skepticism, and I think it was justified about how good Corey Crawford actually was. Um, you know, similar to Corey Schneider, we talked about like he marinated in the AHL for a long time. I think he was there for like four or five full seasons. He's already 26 or 27 years old by this point. He's a rookie in this season and they handed over the keys to him after Antiniemi left in free agency. And I think people around the league and myself included were wondering about how good he actually was versus whether um, his success was just purely playing behind this really awesome team. And after a slow start to this series in game four, he stops 21 of 23 in game five, he's got this 36 save shutout. In game six, 32 of 35. And in this game, he stops 36 of 38. But the Canucks had, I don't know how many sort of grade A glorious scoring chances. Natural Statric has it at 22-11 for the Canucks in this game. Um, he, he, like, 
it easily could have been four nothing or five nothing at one point in the second period and he was just remarkable so i think like he proved a lot to me and obviously he wound up having a really really strong year uh, career and asserting that he wasn't just the system of the team that he was actually just a really good goalie in his own right but this was sort of this game in particular was the time where i really had my eyes open to the fact that he was just a really good goalie no question and i think with so Corey Crawford is notorious for not remembering specifics when it comes to games and when I was trying to talk to Blackhawks players about this series, the team was early in the year anyway, losing a lot. And they are a proud group. They're a group that expects to contend for a championship. And and when you think about what it's like for a team that was at the absolute summit of the sport to gradually fall into also ran status, like your day to day is not different. It's just the results. And if you still think you're who you were and all athletes do, like it's a really frustrating experience. So it was really hard for me to get Blackhawks players to talk about this series. Like I really appreciated that Taves and Kane did, um, you know, and they were both really good sports. And I, I think they were happy to sort of relive their glory days. But I wasn't able to get Keith. I wasn't able to get Seabrook. And in Corey Crawford's case, I wasn't able to get him, but I really did want the goaltender's perspective on the OT winner. So I asked Mark Lazarus of the Athletic Chicago to talk to Crawford, and I gave him a list of questions. And so he goes to Crawford, and Crawford can't remember a single thing. And then he says, you know, what do you remember about the moments after the goal it gets scored itself? And uh, and Crawford told Laz, um, you know, and I've got the I've got the transcript somewhere, but Crawford tells Laz, is this guy trying to start a fight? <laughs> which um, which was probably the best quote that I got that I couldn't use. But yeah, mm-hmm. Corey Crawford didn't remember a single thing about it. Um, this was an epic, epic performance from him. I think this game, you know, on sort of balance could have been a lot more lopsided than it actually was. And, you know, if you go back and um, unfortunately there's no expected goals for us to check on, uh, but the Canucks generate 40 scoring chances uh, and 22 high danger chances to 23 scoring chances for Chicago and 11 11, high danger. So, uh, I mean, I think that, I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that the fact that this was a 2-1 Canucks victory in overtime, um, you know, is a big credit to the quality of Crawford's performance. The most that guy, um, there's actually quite a few choices for two teams. That, there's uh, there's only one right choice, right? Is it John Scott? Oh, he doesn't play uh, in this game, but... No, I mean, I, I don't think so. Like... I will look, it's probably got to be Ryan Johnson, right? Because Ryan Johnson yeah. was on both sides of this battle. Um, like Ryan Johnson's the only guy to have lost in the Chicago. Ryan Johnson's the only player to play in all three Chicago Vancouver playoff series and lose each time. Yep. <laughs> so Ryan Johnson's got to be a strong contender, but certainly number one with a bullet has got to be Victor Oreskovich, right? Yeah. I mean, I had him on my list. I had a couple. I had one name in particular above him. But Pisani? Yeah, it has to be. I mean, he plays 559 in this game. Uh, So, okay, in the 06 playoffs for the Oilers, he has 14 goals on 49 shots. He leads the league in in postseason scoring. He gets this $10 million deal this summer, and he never tops 14 goals again in his career. Like, Like in aggregate. Yeah. No, no. He had like he had a couple years with like 
13 goals, I think, but he okay, never okay. topped that postseason mark of 14 again. Yeah, tremendous. So he was like Brian Bickle before Brian Bickle was Brian Bickle. Yeah, and before people understood <laughs> that shooting percentage it was a thing. <laughs> yeah, so now he's got uh, he's got millions of dollars buried in his backyard as a result of Dwayne Rollison's excellent playoff performance. That's tremendous. I think I, I also had Tanner Glass just because of Alan Vigneault's inexplicable fascination with him. And then he winds up going to New York and exposes a whole new fan base to disliking him. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that's notable. I think Tanner, John Scott, Tanner, I, I, Tanner glass had a great career. <laughs> he made money. Certainly playing. He made NHL. 10 million. Yeah, yeah, no Tanner glass. I got time for Tanner glass. Plus, uh, you know, he was probably Vancouver's best fourth liner, which uh, tells you a lot about Vancouver's fourth line. John Scott, I mentioned him, 2016 All-Star Game MVP. He doesn't play in this game. He suits up for four games in the series and plays 25 minutes and completely sticks out like a sore thumb. But really nice guy. I think uh, in, the, in the summer of 2016, I actually was in Toronto doing some Sportsnet stuff and had some beers with him, and he was incredibly nice. He said my beard was better than Brent Burns's, and uh, wow, you know, I'll, I'll, always, I'll always have time for him in my books. Wow, so a great guy, not super honest. No, big, big-time <laughs> liar, a lie to my face. <laughs> but yeah no definitely based on his impact in this series i did not see him as a future all-star mvp um very glad it happened as for brent burns i still miss his rebel yell on the forecheck um you know a, a true shame uh that bob bugner has insisted on playing him on the back end when so clearly we need him turned loose on the forecheck yep. uh, where he is the funniest player to watch in the history of the sport um any unanswerable questions i feel like we've kind of like vaguely touched on a bunch of them so far but is there anything that stuck out to you from rewatching this where like we're just left wondering what happened or why something happened i i think i think this might be a weird fit for this just because i feel like i've talked to everyone about the series like i don't think there's anything that i don't know about this series that i really wanted to know i i, I feel like we have a really good understanding of what went in, what went on and why um, you know, and I think the sort of only thing that I don't think the Canucks are truly honest about is they remain, um, to a man, you know, convinced that that overtime intermission, the intermission before overtime, that there was a quiet calm and confidence in the locker room. And I just find that impossible to believe. Yeah. Like, I just don't think that anyone's willing to be honest about how they actually felt. Um, I find it really difficult to imagine that they weren't shook a bit uh, by what had occurred. Shook. I think I'd buy it just from the perspective of they were clearly the better team in this game. So I think there was like some to draw for that, but certainly when it comes down to the fact that the next goal wins the series, um, I imagine there was quite a bit of tension. I had, right. um, was there a more underrated player of his era than Brian Campbell? No. And by the way, Brian Campbell, Brian Campbell and Quinn Hughes, hmm. like if you don't see the similarities there, I don't know what to tell you. Like people like to drop other comps, for Quinn Hughes, I think Quinn Hughes might be a better offensive player over the life of his career. But man, I, I find it, I, it's like watching the ghost racer in Mario Kart, <laughs> like watching Quinn Hughes play, having watched uh, sort of late career Brian Campbell. Um, you know, I, I just find it an uncanny similarity. Yeah, I mean, from 06 to 2016, just he basically checked every single box that I want from my defenseman, just like played 82 games every time. 
The team was always better with him on the ice. He logged big minutes, but never took penalties. In this series, he's playing the shutdown role with Nicholas Jalmers. And I know most people think in hindsight that it was like Keith and Seabrook, but it wasn't. He's got 50 point seasons with three different teams during a deck. It just like, he was just an absolute monster and he was really, really good in this series. I think the other one is what the hell happened to Christian Ehrhoff? Well, head injuries, right? Yes. Uh, first of all, first of all, he chased the money in Buffalo and he made a lot of it, right? Like, uh, I think that's one of the most, that was the very early, like, let's get really good, really fast Pagula era where they made a ton of mistakes, including the Ville Leno deal. But the Airhoff contract paid him just an outrageous amount front loaded, right? Because this was before, like, when you could sign guys to ridiculous deals. So yeah, Christian Airhoff had, uh, made 18 million. Over the life of his, for, uh, over the first two co- years of his contract, made another four million in the third year, and it was bought out thereafter. Um, I mean, just an absolute steal. But look, Erhoff played at a Norris level for those two years in Buffalo. That team was just completely horrendous when he wasn't on the ice. Like they were like a sixty percent Corsi team with him on the ice, and something like a forty percent course. Like I've almost never seen an on ice impact as dramatic as what Erhoff had in the uh, lockout shortened 12-13 season. I think that, you know, he was uh, he was still a tremendous player before the head injuries kind of took their toll. And um, you know, I do think that like when you think about that and it's not just the playoffs. Like it's ju- it's just not. When you think about how aesthetically pleasing that 10-11 team was, and compare it with the 12-13 version, um, like or sorry, the 11-12 version, like the 11-12 Presidents Trophy winning Canucks were joyless. And I think losing that sort of nitrous push that Erhoff gave them from the back end uh, really really fundamentally changed the equation for how that team played. Yeah, perfect player on the perfect team this season. He's what plays 250 plus uh, power play minutes with the Sedins. Like he's playing in kind of, um, you know, cushier deployment with Air, with Edler at 5 on 5. And then he basically winds up going in. His most common partners the following season are Jordan Leopold, Mark Andre Garnani, and Alex Salzer. So I think uh, that kind of says it all. And, you know, listen, he, he got paid $40 million and he's going to be making, what, 900 k or so every year until 2028. So not quite Bobby Bonilla, but I think it wound up working out for him as well. So it's no all, question. all priorities, I guess. Uh, last thing is uh, I've done this sort of looking back historic project with Dom LeCision. Um, So t- I have this number handy. But by uh, you know, a- adjusted game score. Christian Erhoff's 10-11 season is the third best Canucks season post lockout. Uh, so of the last 15 years by a defenseman, um, bested only by Quinn Hughes this year and Ed Jovanovsky in the first year after the lockout when he had 33 points in 44 games. Nice, good company. Um, so Apex Mountain, I think it's got to be the Sedins. They're on the second uh, leg of their back-to-back Art Ross trophies yeah. here. Um, Daniel gets robbed of the heart, as you mentioned. Corey Perry stole it from him, and we'll never forgive him for that, but he takes home that Lindsay. I think at 5-on-5 five five in particular, you you know, they had the number one ranked power play, so you'd expect these crazy numbers, but just the 5-on-5 five five production alone, where Henrik Sedin has 103 5-on-5 five five assists during those two years. Daniel's second in the league with 75, and no one else has more than 65. So they were just being used perfectly with Maholtra and Kessler allowed to sort of shelter them and, and use them the way they're designed to be used but just the way they were tilting the ice with um, you know their passing and their creativity and, and fortunately we got to celebrate all of those things and made them special during this season with their jersey retirement but it was kind of cool to relive this era where they were just completely dominant 
Yeah, and they hit this gear in 10-11 where they, like, didn't even have to send passes to each other on the ice. Like, they just sort of lob it at one another. Um, They were playing a different sport sometimes, and it shows up in the numbers, right? If you go from the season before, so 0-9-10, 10-11, and then 11-12, and sort of combine those seasons, um, Burroughs and the Twins were the only three players in the NHL who were plus 100 over the course of that stretch. They would have been 1-2-3, natural hat trick, um, sorry. So the Sedins were both plus 100. Burroughs was slightly under uh, 100. And the only guy who's in, who interferes with a natural plus minus hat trick for that line over that three year span is Zidane Ochara, nice. <laughs> which which is uh, hilarious. But look, I mean, by basically any metric, I mean, they were both top five in scoring over that stretch. Like their peak, their sort of four or five year peak was properly elite right like up there with Ovechkin and like Marty St. Louis like that's their company they were as good as anyone's ever been for a for a five-year stretch uh at least in the sort of salary cap era and you're and yeah this was them at the absolute cerebral completely impossible to knock off the puck dangerous off the rush their skating had improved their strength had improved they had this ability to just outlast opponents in terms of their stamina they were ruthless they like stole (laughs) the oxygen from opposition lungs and then scored these beautiful geometric you know goals uh, against players that could barely stand and uh look it was cruel it was fun it was unique we'll never see anything like it again not just in hockey but across sports uh two twins who played their whole lives together and as a result came up with their own chemistry their own unique style of play um you know remarkable and you're right to watch them at the height of their powers to go back i mean it's just a treat we've never seen anything like it we'll never see anything like it again and boy was it fun the other clear apex here for me is Ryan Kessler. You know, he reportedly, I guess, played with um, a groin and labrum tear from game five in the Western Conference final later on in this postseason. But, you know, he's kind of quiet offensively in this series, as we touched on in that head-to-head battle with Taves. But in the following round against the Predators, he plays about as immaculate a series as you can have where he's playing 25 minutes per game. He's got five goals, 11 points, 24 shots in those six games. Like, he just completely rips the heart out of the Predators. He won the Selkie this year, had the 41 goals as well. The team was just insane with him on the ice at 5-on-5, and he was playing with you know brother mason raymond michael samuelson jeff there was like a jeff tambellini stretch like it was just he was on another level so i think um you know the Sedins are clearly the apex and i think kessler was as well and that one two punch down the middle that we talked about was the reason why this team was so good yeah no you're right those and those are the guys like that's that one two punch elevated the canucks for a two-year stretch um and you're right. Those guys were just at the absolute, absolute peak of their powers. Uh, and they they crushed it. Like, they were so fun to watch. Uh, you know, uh, shouts to Michael Samuelson, too. Mm. <laughs> Samuelson, obviously not probably the most deserving name for, for Apex Mountain. But, right. you know, this was the second of two 50-point 50 50 seasons that he had in Vancouver. And he was just such a uniquely good fit for the Twins. Like, he was grumpier than them uh, against opponents. Um, he was quietly really good at the net front. And he shot from everywhere. Like, he had absolutely no conscience. And for the Twins, they've often been at their best with m- mad volume shooters uh, to play with. Because if you do anything that's a little bit unpredictable, the Sedin Twins can figure out how to adjust to you and use it. Um, 
and that's something that they did really perfectly with Mikhail Samuelson in this game. They're playing with him. And I think this is one of the last two games that Samuelson plays as a Canuck. Uh, truly one of the like underrated Canucks tenures. He was absolutely dynamic in his two Vancouver seasons. Yeah. Uh, Doc and Eddie's commentary corner. It's a shame um, that the CBC version isn't online just because there were a couple great Luongo saves and it would have been awesome to hear a great save Luongo from Jim Hewson. But, you know, listening to John Forslund and, and Razor Ray, um, who I think at this point are both sort of top five guys of their respective positions in, in play-by-play and color, um, was cool. They messed up the first goal call. They said uh, Mason Raymond scored it, and it was actually yep. Alex Burrows. But beyond that, I actually thought they really settled in and did a good job of sort of less is more. Like, I felt like they let the play breathe a little bit. I, I think sometimes with these epic game sevens, especially if like Pierre Maguire is doing it, he's just like, he feels the need to elevate his voice to, to match the energy of the game. And it just like, winds up like sounding like someone's yelling at you. Whereas I think they do a good job of sort of capturing the moment and just letting it breathe and just letting the play speak for itself. And I really appreciated that in the rewatch. hundred percent. The other thing to note, I think is the, you know, extent to which national broadcasts miss razor these days mm. like that makes absolutely no sense um they need to get razor back i learn how to talk about hockey like i get smarter about how to talk about hockey more, more artful every time i listen to a razor broadcast um you know i now know to call pads pillows and a variety of other fun sort of things that i that i get to pick up when i watch him call a game uh so you're right i mean look razor is the best and he, it's he remarkable was- he refers to a, a rebound one of the goalies gives up as big boned, which I, <laughs> I mean, his vocabulary Tremendous. is next level. Yeah. It's really. unbelievable. And it's, it's always artful and fun. There's no, you know, Sicaris go to Webster about it. Um, it's really straightforward. It's just hilarious. And, and then the last thing is obviously we got to give shouts to, uh, you know, Jim Houston did call a hell of a game. And if you go watch the CBC broadcast, they do a tremendous job letting the moment breathe, especially after the Burroughs goal, just sort of, you know, shutting up and letting the audience take over. Um, I think Houston scored, uh, called a really strong game and then obviously shouts to John Shorthouse on the radio call in Vancouver for, uh, I guess at the time it would have been Team 1040, not TSN 1040. Mm. Right. And um, but his call, of course, includes Alex Burroughs, um, the Dragon Slayer call, uh, clearly Shorty's most famous call, probably the most famous goal call, you know, aside from uh, he'd play on crutches like, you know, he'll play he'll play on crutches if he has to. Like those are sort of the two calls that sort of stand out in Canucks history. And uh, so we got to give some shouts to Shorty for that. Yeah. And the last category, who won the game, I think we made it pretty clear. It's got to be Burroughs from quite literally winning the game to just, um, I think the story, as you so neatly outlined, but just like the fact that he also just did it in vintage Burroughs fashion, right place, right time, bearing his opportunities. I think it's uh, it's got to be him, right? It's got to be him. And also, another thing to note about Burroughs is his wife was pregnant and, and had a uh, complicated uh, pregnancy. Uh, during the time of this sort of um, series. So like Burroughs almost didn't go to Chicago for game six, but they sort of decided that they'd take that chance. And his uh, daughter, Victoria, uh, is born the next day. And I guess the one thing I didn't say this um, 
I didn't say this uh, as my unanswered question, but one thing I've never asked Burroughs that I always mean to is, did you name your daughter Victoria? Because you'd won the day before. <laughs> um, uh, last thing is, on the oral history that I published, there's a athletic commenter named Paul P. And Paul P. relayed this story. And this is completely unverified. It's like from an internet commenter, but it's so good. So I got to read it. Uh, a friend of mine's sister, he says, is married to one of the Blackhawks from that series. I won't say who. My favorite story from that playoffs is that after the goal happened, the Chicago players trudged back to their locker room and just sat there in complete silence. Finally, unable to hold it in, someone shouts, anyone but fucking Burroughs, followed by a chorus of agreement from the rest of the players. That sums up the, the situation pretty well. I think... <laughs> Yeah, no, that's good. It's crazy that Paul Pierce had that story. <laughs> um, yeah. The truth, the truth, that's right. All right, man. Um, well, this was a blast. We uh 100 minutes on this rewatch. Pretty much as long as the game, I think, as long as the, <laughs> yeah. uh, the full broadcast. So there was a lot of stuff to get into. Hopefully we did it justice. Uh, Trans, plug some stuff. Where, uh, where can people check you out? And um, how can they find that oral history you did? Yeah, co- uh- it's the oral history of Alex Burroughs' overtime game winner. It's at The Athletic. Um, probably uh, an article I'm prouder of than just about any that I've ever done. Uh, took a ton of work. Um, you know, drove out to El Segundo uh, after a Canucks morning skate in, in Orange County. <laughs> like, did some truly ridiculous shit to get this done. Um, you know, leaned on the help of some colleagues. Uh, figured it out. Got some great quotes from guys like Kessler, Taves, Biexa, Luongo. Uh, everyone played ball. Uh, Patrick Sharp too um, so look it was a lot of fun to do and, and I hope people check it out after listening to this podcast also you can find my work at theathletic.com and I'm on TSN 1040 regularly as well alright man well I highly recommend everyone does that this was a blast I'm glad we got to do this I hope everyone listening got a, a nice little much needed distraction for the past two hours and uh goes back and enjoys these games stay safe wash your hands stay indoors whenever you can and uh we'll be back in a couple of days with uh with that next rewatchable so thanks for listening and drance stay safe and we'll talk soon man thanks man thanks for having me the hockey pdo cast with dimitri filipovich Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.